If you would join me in prayer, one more time, please. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word is perfect, it is sufficient, indeed your word is glorious, and through your word we behold the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord, this morning as we are needy, feed us for we are hungry Open the eyes of our hearts to see how glorious our Savior is and cause us by your Holy Spirit to become more like him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The year was 1505. A young law student was making a journey of about 90 kilometers from the city he was living to go and visit his family. And during this journey, there was a great thunderstorm. Lightning was flashing, thunder was peeling, the rain was falling, the wind was blowing, and this young man was absolutely gripped with terror. It almost felt to him like God himself had opened up the heavens and was getting ready to strike him down. And faced with this fear of imminent death and this great crisis, he went and found shelter behind this huge rock. And then he began crying out to heaven. He had this patron saint in his family. He began crying out to her. And then he vowed that if he was delivered from this great crisis, he would become a monk. Well, he was saved safely from that thunderstorm. And then he sought to keep his part of the bargain. He sold all his law books and became a monk. If you haven't realized who I'm talking about, this young man's name was Martin Luther, who 12 years later, after this incident, as he was studying the Bible uh, in his monastery came upon the truth that our justification, our salvation is by faith alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone and therefore began the Protestant Reformation, a recovery of the gospel and the truth of the scriptures because of which all of us are here this morning. What do you do when you are faced with deep unimaginable distress. Have you ever cried out to God for intervention? Maybe you've promised Him something, if only He will come deliver you, I'll do this for you, God. Have you ever wondered what you could ever give back to God? How could you ever repay Him for His salvation, for His deliverance in your life? This morning as we continue our series through the book of Judges, you will see that things are getting darker. Things keep getting darker in this book as Israel, the people of God, keep spiraling downward. They're going down the drain. They are declining and deteriorating further and further in their sin. What we'll also see is not only are the people getting worse, But the deliverers, their saviors, are getting worse as well, as we saw the last couple of weeks with Gideon. Well, this week we are going to meet a man named Jephthah, and we are going to encounter one of the most tragic and disturbing stories in all of Scripture. Uh, This is a story you probably didn't hear in children's Sunday school growing up. I guarantee you probably won't see it in most children's Bibles. I picked up a few. I picked up a few this week, and I didn't see it there. And as we look at Jephthah's life, we're going to ask the question, what can we give to God for His great salvation? We'll probe the answer to that question as we look at Jephthah's story in six scenes. I'm going to go through his story in six scenes. 
Scene one, Jephthah's context. Jephthah's context. Before we are introduced to the man himself, before we meet Jephthah himself, we must first look at the context in which he arose. And there's two aspects of this context. We'll see first the judges that were there, kind of before and after him, around him. And then we'll look at the state of the nation, the people themselves. Uh, if you look at Jephthah's story in chapter 10 and uh, all the way through chapter 12, you'll see it's kind of like a sandwich on either side. You have these minor judges who are named in the book of Judges. I told you the book of Judges has six major judges and six minor judges. We've already met one minor judge several weeks ago. His name was Shamgar. Today you'll see there are five minor judges and they're all placed on either side of Jephthah. All right? So you have two on one side before Jephthah and three on the other side. Let's pick it up in chapter 10 and verse 1. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havot Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kamon. So those are the two minor judges preceding Jephthah. They're called minor not because they were small guys or because they're unimportant, but because Scripture doesn't give much attention to them. If you skip to chapter 12 and verse 8 and following, you'll see three minor judges who come after Jephthah. After him, that is after Jephthah, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon, not Elon Musk, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel 10 years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Piratonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Piratonite, died and was buried at Piraton in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. We're not going to devote much time to these minor judges because Scripture doesn't devote that much space to them. But some brief comments. First, with Tola, at the start of chapter 10 there, you'll notice it says that he arose after Abimelech. So the context, you must remember, is what has happened, what we saw last week in the previous chapter, in chapter 9. Israel was self-destructing. They had this wicked, self-appointed king, the son of Gideon, who tore apart the nation who was setting his own people on fire, and then God intervened and put his vicious, wicked reign to, a, to an end. And if you notice here, it says, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola. Save Israel from whom? It's interesting. It doesn't mention an enemy like it usually does. Well, this man was saving Israel from themselves. And as we keep reading the book of Judges, you'll see more and more of that. More than the enemies outside, the greatest enemy is inside. Israel is their own worst enemy because of their sin. The other thing you'll notice about these minor judges, apart from Tola, it doesn't mention that any of them were saving or delivering Israel. It just says they ruled or they judged. These guys have now become more of kind of political leaders than saviors. They are governors more than deliverers. And several of them, if you noticed as I read, they had many sons and many daughters uh, riding on many donkeys. They were ruling over many cities. They've accumulated power for themselves. Uh, when it says that there were many sons and many daughters, especially if there's 30 and 40 and some of them have 70, I'm assuming it was not all from one wife. They probably had many wives. So they're following in the pattern of Abimelech and Gideon, kind of stylizing themselves as kings, ruling in this way over several cities. Did you also notice it doesn't use the language that the Lord raised them up? 
Even with Tola, he arose. This is not God raising up deliverers. These are men who have come into power through political machinations and they're ruling. Where's God in the picture? They just arise. And then if you noticed what was common to all five of them, maybe if you were paying attention as I read, what was common to all five of these guys? What has been common to all of the judges that we've met so far in this book? They all died. They all died and their deaths are recorded. He died and was buried. In the case of every single one of these leaders, these deliverers, death has the final word. They're not enough. No, God's people need a savior. God's people need a judge. God's people need a deliverer who is greater than death, who can save by the power of an indestructible life. So that's the first part of Jephthah's context. These judges who were there before and after him. Now let's look at the status of the nation before Jephthah shows up. 10 verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed. I saw this interesting clip yesterday uh, on social media of this woman who had brought her dog on a talk show. And uh, this was supposed to be a very special dog because she had trained the dog to be a vegetarian, apparently. So the talk show host says, okay, we're going to test this. I think the dog's name was Storm or something like that. And they bring out two bowls, one filled with meat and the other filled with vegetables. And they say, okay, you're going to let the dog go. And she says, he's absolutely vegetarian. He's going to go for the vegetables. And she lets the dog go. And guess where the dog goes? He goes to the meat. And it's really funny. He even sniffs the vegetables. And then she says, there, there. He's going to make a choice. And then, no, he eats the meat. No, the training didn't work. No amount of training could work because that's the dog's nature. The people of Israel are kind of like that in the book of Judges, aren't they? They, for a short time, under a certain judge, will kind of superficially serve the Lord. But then very soon after, they're back to their old ways. And we again see this pattern that we've seen over and over again. It begins with disobedience. That favorite verse that has appeared so many times in Judges is right here in verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And look this time. The number of gods that they're serving has multiplied. They serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. It mentions seven different sets of gods. And seven in Hebrew thinking is a number of what is complete. So what they have entered into is a complete and total idolatry. A complete and total abandonment of the living God. And what you'll also notice that's interesting, did you notice it says the gods of Moab, the gods of Syria. Friends, these were the nations that we have seen earlier in Judges were oppressing Israel, were enslaving Israel. The very gods of the people that enslaved them, from whom Yahweh delivered them, the gods that caused them so much distress, they've gone back to. You see, idols have a way of enslaving those who serve them. And so when you serve idols, you enter into this vicious cycle where the idol oppresses you, brings you into slavery, and then as you want more help, you go back to that idol that enslaves you. What this is telling us here is that Israel is becoming totally Canaanized, paganized, and we'll keep seeing that unfold through the rest of the book. So it begins with their disobedience. What follows usually in this pattern? God's discipline. God responds with discipline. And this time he sends them, the Philistines 
and the Ammonites. Uh, we'll see today the struggle with the Ammonites, and then next week onwards, the struggle with the Philistines will occupy our attention. The oppression they face here is the most severe they've faced so far. Notice verse 8. It says they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel. That word that is translated oppressed can also mean shattered. They absolutely crushed and shattered them. For 18 years, they shattered all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan. Their reach is expanding on both sides of the Jordan. All the regions and territory of Israel has begun to be taken over. And look at the end of verse 9. It says, they were severely distressed. Disobedience brings about God's discipline, which leads to the people's distress. And here the distress is severe. They were exceedingly distressed. When we turn from the Lord and we begin to serve idols, sin and idolatry has this uncanny way of growing, increasing, and multiplying in your life. When you turn away from the Lord and you begin to serve idols, what you'll find is that you will begin running from one idol to another, and one God to another, crying out for help, crying out for satisfaction, and finding none. As John Calvin famously said, the human heart is an idol factory, and will keep on churning out idols. And when you don't get what you want from one idol, you will run to another. And friends, of course, you might be sitting here and say, oh, well, we don't worship idols You know, I don't have any physical fertility gods of wood or stone in my house. But friends, an idol, biblically speaking, is anything that draws our hearts away from the living God. Whether that's career, or money, or success, or success for your children according to some perceived standard you have in your mind or acceptance, or popularity, or appearance, or pleasure, whatever you live for, if it's not the Lord that's first in your heart, that's an idol. And here's what this passage is telling us. Whatever you're living for, if it's not the Lord, it will rule over you. It will begin to multiply its influence in your life. It will control you. It will suck the life out of you and make you miserable and bring you to distress. And finally, eventually, it will completely shatter you. Whatever you serve, you will become a slave to it and live in subjection to it. And you will pay the price. The wages of sin is death. Idols will leave you crushed and shattered. And this morning, as he addresses you from his word, the Lord, my friends, graciously gives you the opportunity to examine your hearts, to examine what false gods or idols we are running after, and to shatter them before they shatter you. So the people of Israel now are in severe distress, and they do what they've always kept doing when they're in distress. What do they do? They cry out to the Lord, verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. This time, the Lord's response is different. His response to these cries has begun to change. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw that God doesn't immediately provide deliverance. No, instead, He sends a prophet to deliver a sermon to instruct his people and correct them. The Lord has grown very familiar with this wretched and insincere cry of his people. God is a savior, my friends, but he's not just there for us to go run to him whenever we're in trouble and ignore him the rest of the time. Notice the Lord, he responds differently. Verse 11, the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites? And from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. After a point, our God is slow to anger. He is patient, and he is merciful. 
But our sin begins to wear him out. And there is a point of no return. May it never be so of us. So what did the people say? The people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Whatever seems right in your eyes. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Oh, is this repentance? Are they finally getting the idea? Are they finally pursuing true and biblical repentance? Is that what's happening here? And I want to say the answer to that is no. No, this is just an external, superficial show of repentance. How do I know that? Well, first of all, notice what they say. They say we've sinned, and they don't appeal to God's mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Show us your grace. No, instead they say, do whatever you think is right. But just deliver us. Oh, if you just save us, that's all we want. Just save us this day. Save us from this thunderstorm. Not only that, if you keep reading the book of Judges, it's very clear this repentance didn't last long. So-called repentance. This wasn't real repentance. They lapse immediately back into their habits. Just read chapter 13 and verse 1. They do again what's evil in the sight of the Lord. There's no true and lasting change in their hearts. And then it's very clear that this is not true repentance from God's response in verse 16. Did you notice the second half of verse 16? He became impatient over the misery of Israel. God doesn't look upon what they're doing and view it as repentance and treat them accordingly. No, instead, he's grown tired of this song and dance routine, of this external show that they keep making. He's sighing over them. He looks at them and how miserable they are, and he just doesn't want it to continue. Even there, we see what a compassionate God. Oh, the astonishing grace of God who looks upon the sinful people who are insincere, half-baked in their devotion, repeatedly turning from Him, and He sighs and feels impatient over their misery, wants to bring them out of it. But we'll have to wait and see what He does. There's a glimmer of hope here, but we'll have to wait. So that's the first and the longest scene, and that's the context of Jephthah's story. You've seen Jephthah's context. Next, we'll see how Jephthah is called. The next scene is Jephthah's calling. So the camera has focused here on the people of Israel and this dialogue with the Lord. And now the camera is going to shift and take you outside the city to this town on the outskirts somewhere. And it shows you this guy. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. Sounds good. But... He was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So you see this man, who is a mighty warrior, but it says he was the son of a prostitute. He is an illeg illegitimate son. And apparently this is becoming increasingly common in Israel. Prostitution. Illegitimate births. That tells you something about the condition of the nation. And of course he grows up as an illegitimate son. His brothers who are legitimate sons say, We don't want you to share in our inheritance. Get out of here. They push him out. He becomes an outcast. And then he goes out into the, this outer town called Tob. And the outcast now becomes an outlaw. He gathers around himself this band of other worthless fellows. And he becomes kind of a hitman for hire. Right? Uh, when I try to picture Jephthah, I kind of picture him like Arnold Schwarzenegger in that old movie Commando. Many, many years ago. Some of you might remember. But he's now some kind of a mercenary. All right? And a hitman for hire. He's an outlaw living on the edge of town. And you're wondering... Is he going to be the savior? Is he the guy? Or is he going to be another Abimelech? Because if you remember from the previous chapter, Abimelech wasn't born illegitimately. And Abimelech, if you remember at the beginning of chapter 9, gathered around himself the same group of people, kind of people, like worthless fellows. 
And what did he do? He used that power to make himself king and oppress and crush Israel. Is Jephthah going to be like him? Is he the one who will deliver us? Or is he going to be another Abimelech? Is the Lord going to raise him up to be Israel's deliverer? You're left with those questions. What's going to happen? Let's keep reading. Verses 4 and following. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. So the Ammonites are making war. Israel has been completely shattered. These guys are growing desperate. Remember, they cried out to the Lord. And then the Lord said, Go and call out to the gods whom you've been serving. And then they made some show of repentance, but there was no answer from God. So now they take matters into their own hands, and they seek out the toughest dude in town. Okay, let's go find Jephthah. He's got some muscle. He's got a group of worthless fellows. Maybe he can save us. Maybe he can help us. But how does Jephthah respond? Verse 7, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Strange, isn't it? How they've turned to the very one that they've rejected and they're seeking his help. Now Jephthah, you'll notice, is quite good with words. And he's very good at negotiation and striking bargains. And, and you'll see multiple acts of negotiation as we go through his story. And here's the first one. So verse 9, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. So what is he saying? He's saying, if you want me to go fight these guys and deliver you, bring me back home. Give me my inheritance. And make me ruler. Make me head. He's negotiating the terms of his contract. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So the one who was the outcast became an outlaw, and now the one who was the outlaw has become the leader, and he's going to be the one who's leading these people. Notice... There's no word yet about the Lord raising him up. And also, if you noticed, the way that these Gileadite elders relate to Jephthah is the same way they related to the Lord. They went to God and asked for salvation, the God whom they had abandoned and cast out of town. The Lord said, why are you coming back to me? And they said, oh, only deliver us this day. Here they're going to this man whom they've cast out of town. And they've brought him back and made him leader. They haven't done so with the Lord. Will they? That's a question. You'll notice Jephthah is quite different from the previous judges that we've seen. Every single one of those, the Lord is the one who intervenes and raises them up and makes them judge. Even to Gideon, the Lord is the one who came to him and said, you brave and mighty warrior. We don't see that here. Jephthah rises purely through political machinations through the desperation of these people of Gilead, through his own skillful negotiation. And so you still have this question in your mind, is this another Abimelech? Or is God going to use this outlaw leader? We'll have to see. And so we move on to the next scene. We've seen Jephthah's context. We've seen his calling. Now we'll see Jephthah's confrontation. Jephthah's confrontation. This is in verse 12 and following. So Jephthah has just skillfully with his words negotiated and bargained his way into leadership over the people of Israel, over his tribesmen. Now before he wages war, he wants to use the tactic of negotiation again. Right? So he negotiates with the Ammonites. He confronts the enemy. And, and this is kind of like you know the, the, the pre-fight press conference. Uh, if you ever know, there's a, if there's a good fight, there's, there's kind of this press conference before and there's this build-up, right? And, and there's a lot of talk back and forth. That's what's happening here. So Jephthah is entering into this pre-fight build-up. Verse 12, Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to fight me 
uh, come to me to fight against my land. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. So the king of the Ammonites is making the claim that Israel has illegally dispossessed his people and that this land actually belongs to the Ammonites. And so he's saying, now I want it back. The territory dispute. And Jephthah is going to respond to that. He responds with three arguments. He gives these Ammonites a historical argument, a theological argument, and a practical argument. So first, the historical argument. That's in verses 14 to 22. That's the longest one. Jephthah recounts for him the history of this land and how they got it. Verse 14, Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jehaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. I am really, really bad at geography. When I look at a map, I feel like I'm in the matrix. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, we came out of Egypt. We were on our journey to the promised land. We met these two kings and their land, and we asked them, can we go through? Can you give us safe passage? And they both said, no way. So we went around them. Then we met this third king, Sihon, and we asked him, can we go through your land? And he responded by attacking us. And we defeated him by the power of God. We defeated Sion and the Amorites, and God gave us this land. And so it belongs to us. It never belonged to you, the Ammonites, N. It belonged to the Amorites, R, and we defeated them. That's argument one. Second argument, theological argument, verses 23 and 24. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Shemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. So this is a theological argument. And I have to note here, Jephthah's theology, we're getting symptoms here that his theology is a little bit wonky. It's a little bit off. Right? The, the theology in the ancient world was that each territory that each nation possessed among these peoples uh, was given to them by their God. All right. So Jephthah says, well, the Lord gave us victory over the Amorites, therefore he gave us this land. Your God, Chemosh, has given you your own land. Right? So he's affirming that idea, rather than affirming the fact that the Lord God is God over all lands. So he says, go and get what Chemosh gave you, be satisfied with that. What Yahweh gave us, we'll keep this. That's the second argument, theological His third argument is practical, verses 25 and 26, practical. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aroer and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? So what is Jephthah saying here? He's saying, hey man, 300 years have come and gone. The previous king, Balak, he didn't dispute that we own this land. And for 300 years, you've never raised any issues about it. How come suddenly now, when we're weak and struggling, you come and say, this is my land? You've been quiet for 300 years. You know, enough time has passed for us to lay claim to this. And so he makes his conclusion, verse 27. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. 
Jephthah speaks a lot, doesn't he? He's a man of many words. In fact, he speaks more than any other judge that we've seen so far in Judges and more than any other judge that we will see in the book of Judges. This guy is a real talker. All right? He's skillful with his words. He's a negotiator. He seeks to negotiate with the Ammonites. But in the second half of verse 27, he makes a very significant declaration. He says, the Lord, that's Yahweh, the true God, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Verse 28, but the king of Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Jephthah makes a declaration of faith. Yahweh, the Lord, He is the judge. And by the way, with those words, the author of Judges is reminding us that all of these different judges have come up and gone. But ultimately, it's the Lord who is the judge. He is the deliverer. He is the savior. Jephthah recognizes and he says, may he decide between us and Ammon. And there, even this guy with weird and funny theology, with kind of a Shady life makes a declaration of faith in the one true God. He commits it to him. Of course, the king of the Ammonites will have none of it. And so we move to the next scene. We've seen Jephthah's context, his calling, his confrontation. And now we see Jephthah's conquest. Surprise, surprise. Verse 29. We've been wondering all along, where is the Lord? Is Jephthah God's guy? Is God going to use him? Is God going to deliver the people through him? What's it going to be? And Jephthah says, may the Lord decide. And look at verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. The spirit of the Lord comes. And now Jephthah is clothed with the spirit of the Lord. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. In the old covenant, when we read the spirit of the Lord come upon people, the spirit comes to equip them and empower them to accomplish certain tasks. And here the spirit of the Lord has come to equip and empower Jephthah to bring victory and deliverance for the people. He crosses over. He's getting ready for battle. Verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel, Keramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. You know, there are some iconic photos taken in the 20th century. And one of my favorite iconic photos is from one of the great moments in sports. And you've all probably seen it. Some of you maybe haven't. You should Google it and see it. And it's this picture of Muhammad Ali, right, who is a champion boxer. And it's a picture of Ali in his fight against Sonny Liston. And uh, if you Google it, Muhammad Ali picture or whatever. It'll come up. It's one of the most iconic photos in sports in the 20th century. And it's Ali standing over the guy whom he's just knocked down like this, you know, like in victory. Uh, I, like Muhammad Ali, was from Louisville. That's the place I went to seminary. So he was very popular in that town. And he was called, his nickname was the Louisville Lip. Because Ali would always talk and talk and talk before the fight. So here he was. This is before he became a big superstar in boxing. He's about to fight Sonny Liston, and nobody gave Ali a chance. The odds were 8 to 1. They said, this guy is too small. He doesn't know how to box. Sonny Liston will knock him out real quick. All right? He's going to lose easily. And Ali kept talking, talking. He nicknamed the, the opponent the Big Bad Bear. He said, I'm going to knock him like a human satellite into the sky. I'm going to do this and that. And everybody thought he's going to be utterly humiliated in this fight. And then, you know, they... Fight happens, and within a minute, Ali knocks him down, knocks him out. And then he's standing over him in victory. Boom. Knockout. Fight's over. We have that kind of a moment right here in Judges. Jephthah has been talking and talking and talking, and now you're waiting for the battle. But two verses, boop, boop, it's done. He struck them with a great blow. The Lord gave them into his hand. So much build up and it's done in just a couple of verses because the mighty God of Israel has intervened. The spirit of the Lord has come and the Lord has given the Ammonites into Jephthah's hand. This is a moment of victory. This should be a moment of triumph. 
This should be a moment of celebration. But before we can celebrate Jephthah and Israel's victory, you must notice something ominous. Did you notice verses 30 and 31? This happens right before the fight. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Jephthah is a skilled negotiator. He, we saw, negotiated with the elders of Gilead to make him ruler. And he said, if you bring me back home and make me ruler, then I'll go to war for you. He tried to negotiate with many, many words with the Ammonites. And here he makes a fatal mistake. Right before the battle, he thinks he can negotiate with God. You know, some people have called this Jephthah's rash vow. I don't think it was rash or hasty in the moment. Now, he's under pressure. This is a great crisis in his life. Of course, if he loses the battle, then they're going to cast him out again, and he loses everything. And in the midst of that crisis, he thinks one more time, I'm going to make a negotiation. He's very calculated here. He's trying to manipulate God. He's making a show of his spirituality before the army. He's trying to make sure he has some insurance. Of course, the battle is already his. He should know who God is. But he wants some extra insurance. And so he says, if you do this for me, then whatever comes out of my house, I'll sacrifice it to you. By the way, if you're looking at your Bible carefully and you should always read the footnotes, look at the footnote over the word whatever. If you go down to the bottom, you'll see it's whoever. Jephthah is saying here that if the Lord gives him victory, he's going to make a human sacrifice. And I don't know what he was expecting. He's probably expecting some servant to come out. Uh, some people say, oh, he maybe was expecting an animal to come out. No, the text forbids that. Look at, look at the verse. Whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, that implies this is a person he's expecting. And he was going to offer some person as a human sacrifice to show in a show of devotion. We'll come back to that, but it's very clear Jephthah is influenced by the culture and worldview and religion around him. Because you see, human sacrifice was a very common thing among the people of Moab and among the Canaanites. This was common in their religion. This was common in many religions of the world. And here Jephthah thinks that he can worship the God of the Bible in that way. We've seen his conquest. Now we'll see Jephthah's catastrophe. Look at verse 34 and following. So he's coming home, victorious in battle. This should be a moment of celebration. This is his Muhammad Ali iconic picture moment. Jephthah, the great hero. And look at what happens. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Now, he sounds like he's being pious here. Sounds like he's being spiritual. I made a vow to the Lord. I have to have integrity to keep it. But no friends. Notice he puts the blame on his daughter. You have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. No, Jephthah, it wasn't her that brought you very low. It was your mouth and your incessant words that brought you very low. Words are so important, aren't they? That's why James says... If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Our words have consequences. What's more here is you should notice, Jephthah doesn't know his Bible. Yes, he knew all of the facts about Israel's history and how they got the land, but he doesn't know God's law and what God's law demands and what provisions God's law even makes. 
Because if he knew his Bible, then he would know the law. He would go to Leviticus 27. And you'll see in Leviticus 27 that if a human being has been devoted unto the Lord, then you don't sacrifice them. No, you redeem them with money. All right? There's a price that Leviticus 27 specifies for the redemption of a human person who has been devoted unto the Lord, both male and female. The price is given. Jephthah didn't know that. He would have known Numbers chapter 30 in God's law. If you go to Numbers chapter 30, you'll see that if someone makes a vow, if a wife makes a vow, for, an inst for instance, and her husband disagrees with that vow, then she would be released from that vow. Because she can't make that vow on her own authority. Her husband is her authority. And so it would not be carried out. He would realize that he's made this vow. He needs to go to those who are in authority. But guess what? He's already appointed himself as the only authority. He would know his Bible from Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 31. Where the Lord declares that human sacrifice is abominable to him. That God demands no such thing. That he hates human sacrifice. Deuteronomy 12.31 You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done. That is the pagans have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. No, God has said you only worship me in the way that I command. See, Gideon wanted God to do for him something more than what God had clearly said in his word. Jephthah, he wants to do for God something more than God, what God requires clearly in his word. Both are pagan ways of relating to God. He doesn't know his Bible. And guess what? When the dad doesn't know the Bible, the kids don't know the Bible either. Neither does his daughter, right? Verse 36, she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months... She returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. I want to explain this for us. A lot of Bible scholars, and maybe some of you even have study Bibles that do this, they try to rescue Jephthah and whitewash him from this unimaginable evil. So they'll say he didn't actually sacrifice his daughter and kill her. Instead, what he did was he devoted her to God to be a perpetual virgin serving in the temple. And what is sad is that he could, couldn't have any grandchildren. Friends, I could give you several lines of argument that refute that thinking, but I think the text is just clear. You have to do some real interpretive gymnastics to escape from what the text is saying. He did to her according to his vow that he had made, which means he offered her up as a burnt offering. All through this, you see this eerie silence of God. Why isn't God speaking? Well, the answer, my friends, is God has already spoken. He has made it clear in his word and his word has been silenced and ignored. And so we've come here to the worst and darkest moment in the book of Judges so far. In fact, it's one of the darkest moments in the whole Bible. Jephthah has conformed to the pattern of paganism in the world around him. He is paganized just like the rest of the people of Israel. Yes, he worships the Lord Yahweh, but he's worshiping the Lord in his own way, in an unbiblical way, according to his own mind, according to what's right in his own eyes, according to the pattern of the worship of the nations around him. His thorough lack of biblical knowledge, he does not know the character and the grace of God. And so it costs him dearly. It costs him 
severely. Jephthah's story is not over yet. Believe it or not, things get even worse in our final scene. You've seen his context, his calling, his confrontation, his conquest, the catastrophe of sacrificing his daughter. Finally, we see Jephthah's carnage. Chapter 12. The men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed over to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. So these are the same guys, the Ephraimites, by the way, whom we met in chapter 8. When Gideon was victorious, they went to Gideon and they said, hey, why didn't you call us out? And they began fiercely accusing him. They have this arrogant and egotistical kind of tendency. It's all about them. Why weren't we included? And Gideon smooth-talked them, you remember, but this time they messed with the wrong guy. All right? What does Jephthah do? Verse 2, he said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. When I called you, you did not save me from their hand. When I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? And very quickly from there, Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, and the men of Gilead struck Ephraim, because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. So the Ephraimites insulted these guys. Jephthah gathers all the Gileadites, and now we have this intertribal war, and they strike the Ephraimites. And then what do they do? Verses 5 on following. The Gileadites, so these two tribes are on either side of the Jordan River, all right? The Gileadites are east of the Jordan. The Ephraimites are west of the Jordan River. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to them, are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. So the Gileadites, they capture the banks of this river, the fords, where you have to cross. And anytime a guy wants to cross over from Ephraim from one side to the other, they say, are you from Ephraim? And the guy says, oh, they're going to kill me if I say I'm from Ephraim. No, I'm not. So then they say, say Shibboleth. What's happening here with the Shibboleth, Shibboleth? Yesterday I went to Starbucks and I asked for coffee and they do the usual thing which they do at Starbucks. Tell her, what's your name, sir? And I said, my name is Aubrey. And so I get this cup with A-B-U-R-D-Y, Aberdy, written on it. <laughs> and that happens quite frequently different ways at Starbucks. And usually by the way that my name is written, I have this interest in linguistics. Usually by the, name that, that, the way my name is written, I can tell what country the person is from. Because you see, your language, your first language, affects your accent. And sometimes even when we speak, all speaking English from different parts, our accents are different. All right, so I'm not going to pick out any particular people group here, but you all know what I'm talking about. The word is shibboleth. Ephraim doesn't have the sh sound, so they say sibboleth. And guess what the price is for pronouncing it wrong, which reveals your tribe. You're put to death. They slaughtered 42,000 of the Ephraimites. 42,000. That's one of the greatest slaughters in this book. And did you notice, Jephthah was more diplomatic with the enemy, with the Ammonites, than with his own people from Israel, just from a different tribe. Yes, these people were arrogant, they were kind of divisive and self-important. But still, now the Jordan River is filled with the blood of Israelites. Friends, Jephthah's story comes to a tragic ending where the gracious and mighty deliverance of God is overshadowed by human foolishness, human arrogance, and human brutality. Now, 42,000 is one of the greatest slaughters we've seen, more than many of the enemy armies. We saw Gideon's deliverance end with leading the nation into sin again and the bloodthirsty rule of Abimelech. Here, Jephthah's victory is completely darkened by the sacrificial murder of his own daughter and his cold-hearted slaughter of fellow Israelites. Victory comes with sorrow. Celebration turns to lamentation. And the nation itself is tearing itself apart. What you don't see here in this text, like we've seen with the other judges, usually it ends with saying, and the people had rest for so many years. The land had rest 
for this many years. There's no more rest in the book of Judges. No, this is not a clean win. This is not a complete salvation. The story is screaming to us. We need a greater salvation. We need a better savior. You know, you might read all of this and some of you are thinking, if you know your Bible well, you're thinking Hebrews chapter 11 verse 32, it mentions Jephthah there as one of the heroes of faith. How could scripture celebrate someone who did something so heinous and so wicked? How is he included among the 17 Old Testament saints in Hebrews chapter 11? Well, we don't know all the facts. Maybe scripture doesn't record. Maybe he repented at the end of his life. We've seen that with other kings in the Old Testament. Evil kings like Manasseh who repented at the end of his life. We don't know. But we've also got to keep in mind, Hebrews chapter 11 is not celebrating their character or the person or everything in their life. It's celebrating particular acts of faith, right? Uh, As you read that section, those verses, it says, By faith, these people became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. And we do see that in Jephthah. That when it counted, he trusted the Lord. And he entrusted the battle to the Lord. He recognized that God is the judge. Yes, his faith was flawed. His faith was weak. His theology was awful, but his faith was a small flicker of candlelight in a very, very dark time. You hear that and you still feel, oh, that's outrageous. Still, he sacrificed his daughter. That's outrageous. Well, friends, if that's your response, then you don't realize how outrageous and how scandalous and how shocking the grace of God is. And you haven't realized how outrageous and how scandalous and how heinous your own sin is. You see, we come back to the principles for interpreting judges that we've seen in this book. First is that the judges are examples for us. 1 Corinthians 10.6 These things were written down as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. And so you look at Jephthah who's shaped by the culture around him who has this mix of biblical and paganism. And then you ask yourself, where in my life have I been shaped by my culture or the world around me rather than by scripture? Ask yourself, how often unbiblical ideas and thoughts concerning money, concerning success, concerning how we relate to God, how often these things come in and take hold of our minds and roost in our hearts and in our lives and in our churches. Ask yourself, how often do we live according to the patterns of this world rather than according to the prescriptions of God's word? Many of us don't even know God's word well enough. Jephthah would probably beat us in a Bible exam. We're going to go to the picnic and I believe that the kids and teens are going to have hot dogs and I don't want to scare you off. But if you look at some of the hot dog packages, it's not always just beef, you know. Sodium nitrite, maltodextrin, processed turkey bones. I don't know what they put in there. Sometimes that's a picture, friends, of the kind of Christianity that we live. Where the meat of God's word has been mixed with the culture and ideas of the world around us. That's what happened to Jephthah, right? In their pagan culture, pagans would buy off their gods. They would offer human sacrifice and say, that's going to make God happy enough to do something for me. I'm going to offer this and that's going to bring me favor with God. I want to ask you, how often do you think, how often in your life have you thought that you can earn God's favor, get on God's good side, negotiate and bargain with him? How many times have you said, and even if you've not said, you've taught, if only you do this for me, Lord, if only you save me from this sin, if only you help me in this situation, then I'll do this for you. How many times have you thought that just because I do my quiet times, and just because I say my prayers, and just because I show up in church, and just because I do this and that, God is going to bless me? How often have you tried to earn God's favor by imposing 
some arbitrary requirement in your life that goes beyond God's word that his word doesn't require of you. You know, Jephthah's lack of Bible knowledge cost him bitterly. And I just want to press home for us. How often we are content to coast along through life without our minds being shaped by the word of God. For so many of us, we're more shaped by social media than by scripture. We're more shaped by what we binge watch than by our Bibles. Oh, that we would give ourselves ECC, that we would give ourselves to the regular and devoted study and learning and assimilation of God's word in your life so that all of God's word applies to all of life. I want to encourage you to make it a priority to come to the conference next month where we'll be talking about these things, how all of God's word shapes all of life with Dr. Amadi. Friends, we're shaped more than we think by the culture around us. You see, there are two different ways of approaching God. One way is by negotiation, where I'm going to talk and say, if I do this, if I do that, maybe he'll do this for me. What can I do? How can I earn his favor? The other way is grace. Because you see, the Lord looks at us and responds and says, don't you get it? There is nothing you can bring me. There is nothing that you can give me that would cost enough. There is no way you can save yourself or get on my good side. I must act. I must save you. I must provide a sacrifice for you. And that, my friends, is the gospel of grace. It's not about what we must do. It's about what he has done. He does not ask us to slaughter or sacrifice our children. Though God could rightly demand that. Do you realize? God could demand the life of every single person in this room because we have all sinned against him. We are all wicked and our sin deserves nothing less but death and condemnation and hell. But he doesn't demand it. No, instead he gives his own son to be our sacrifice, to save us from our sin, to turn away his own wrath. See, propitiation is a very important biblical and theological word, the idea of propitiation. Propitiation in the pagan world is when human beings offer something to God to get on his good side. But in the Bible's worldview, propitiation is when God comes to worthless, helpless sinners and he offers his own son to turn away his own judgment from us. You see, Judges is not just a book that provides us examples against evil. It also fills us with Christ-centered hope. And God has provided a savior for us, one who Jephthah's life points to, but who is far greater than Jephthah, our savior, Jesus Christ. Jephthah was an outcast rejected by his brothers. Jesus was rejected by his brothers. He was an outsider in the truest sense of the word. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. John chapter one, verse 11. Just like Jephthah, Jesus was despised and rejected. You know, Jephthah's life as an outcast and a reject is what prepared him to be a rescuer of God's people. And in the same way, Jesus, because he was despised and rejected, filled up the sufferings that fit him to be our savior. But there's such a contrast between them as well. The people went seeking Jephthah, seeking after him, asking him to help them. We didn't go seeking out Jesus. He came and sought us out. Jephthah opened his mouth, and as a result of opening his mouth too much, he was brought low. Jesus was silent like a sheep before his slaughterers, and God exalted him. Jesus went into battle, not as an outlaw warrior, but as an outcast servant who died an outcast death for you and me. Jephthah foolishly sacrificed his daughter that did not save him or save anyone, but only added to his sin. Jesus, the perfect son of God, offered himself, poured out his blood to wash away our sin, and he saves us truly and completely forever. 
Jephthah demanded lordship. He asked them to make him leader and lord in order to save. Jesus, the true lord, who was already king of kings and lord of lords, went into battle, died on the cross, offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, saved us, and now as exalted king, summons us, invites us into his kingdom. If you're here and you don't know him, there's forgiveness of sins and salvation in him for you today. What could we give back to God for his salvation? The answer is nothing. It's only by grace that we are saved. And all we can do is with gratitude and praise, with great joy and overflowing thanksgiving, offer him the lives that he has purchased that belong to him to be living sacrifices for him. I appeal to you Brothers, Paul says, Romans 12, by the mercies of God, because of the mercies of God, because of God's mercy shown to us, to present, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual acceptable worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, good and acceptable, and perfect. You see, friends, one day, you and I, like these Ephraimites, will stand at the banks of another Jordan River, seeking to cross, seeking entry into an everlasting kingdom. And on that day, we will not be tested by our accent, or our speech, or ethnicity, We won't be tested by our loyalty to some ruthless and arbitrary leader. But the Lord will weigh our hearts. And all that will count is whether we have trusted in our Savior and King, whose eyes are flaming with fire of holiness and justice, but whose heart overflows with mercy and compassion for all who belong to him, for his people. And he will carry across that Jordan into his eternal kingdom, everyone who is his. Martin Luther said, we find no rest for our weary bones unless we cling to the word of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your marvelous, marvelous grace that saves us and that will lead us home. In Jesus' name, amen.